Alison. Hi, Sarah. So I thought we'd open with a bit of a military salute this mm. week. The French army has been making headline news. Right. France has some 30,000 troops. Some are involved in patrolling here at home, but most are abroad. Some in the Sahel in northern Africa. Right. That's mm. the Barkhan force, right? 5,000 troops. They've been fighting Islamist terrorists in the Sahel since 2013. Yeah, and it hasn't been going very well of late. Mm. President Macron dropped a bit of a bomb at the end of last week, announcing that the operation is going to be radically over. Hold. Right. Some French army bases will be closed and the operations will be shifted to be carried out by special forces and then partners from elsewhere in Europe and Africa. That's what Macron's actually mm. always asked for, more support, right? Um, though he did say there would not be a massive withdrawal of troops, whatever that means. Yeah, it's still a bit of a blow, I mm. think, for the army. And then just four days later, here at home, the head of the armed forces, General François Lecointre, made the surprise announcement that he was stepping down early. Mm. as of July the 21st, rather than waiting until next year's presidential election when the handover would normally be done. Yeah, he says his resignation was to avoid politicizing mm. his role, right? He didn't want to be seen as Macron's man. Yeah, very important to maintain uh, the army's independence. Army wants to be neutral. But all of this comes in the midst of a bit of a scandal because some former generals, some of whom had links to the hard right, signed a letter in April warning that France could be facing civil war mm. if it continues to ignore growing Islamism uh, at home uh, according to them and that it may be in need of a coup d'etat to keep that from happening. Yeah, yeah, and then some serving military, right? They anonymously signed a second open letter in May in support of what these generals were saying. Mm. Uh, Le Cointre was reportedly pressured by the government to bring six of the retired generals in front of a disciplinary council for breaking their duty of reserve. Um, so he was put in a position to speak out against them. The media reported he would have preferred to have dealt with the whole mm. matter internally. Sure. Uh, Le Quint has publicly dismissed the importance of those letters, said that those involved would be sanctioned. He also made a point of saying that the risk of a coup d'etat in France does not exist, uh, that soldiers know they have to obey the government no matter who is in power. Sure, sure. Of course he has to say that. But there are still questions um, being asked about his early departure, um, whether there isn't a sort of malaise vis-a-vis -vis the president. Um, and then there's this Barkhane force issue, of course. Le Quint had been very involved in it, and he reportedly didn't want to be involved in dismantling it. Yeah. The army itself has downplayed Le Quint's resignation, unsurprisingly, mm. insisting that his decision was made long before the letters and the Barkhane announcement. But still, uh, it doesn't show relations between the president and the army uh, at their best. Sure. Le Quint will be leaving then in July after presiding over the traditional Bastille Day military parade down the Champs-Élysées, this on the 14th of July. Mm. Um, it's supposed to be back to normal this year after COVID restrictions have been lifted. Ce lundi sur RFI, édition spéciale, élection régionale. Arnaud Pontus. La France vote ce dimanche, premier tour des élections régionales et départementales. So this is what you're hearing on all French media this week, an election this weekend, the first round of regional elections on Sunday. Yeah, they were meant to happen in March, weren't they, Sarah? But mm. they got delayed twice because of COVID. Yeah, yeah, but they are going ahead. So these are elections for the councils of France's 18 regions, 13 of them in mainland France, all 
also departmental councils. Yeah, so uh, layer upon layer of French administration. <laughs> yeah. It all seems a bit technical. It, we struggle sometimes to see why it's all relevant. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, these layers do raise a lot of quite interesting questions about how things get decided in France. I mean, for years, France has been trying to decentralize, you know, to get away from the Paris focus of everything that happens here. Regions are one way to spread that power. Um, regions can levy taxes. Some have quite huge budgets. Mm. And, and their mission mostly is infrastructure. Yeah, they take care of universities, high schools, uh, hospitals, transport, uh, and very importantly, tourism. Yeah, yeah. All these very important areas that affect people's daily lives. Though it has to be said that there have been reforms over the years to try to spread out more power. Most decisions in France are still made in Paris, which is part of what fueled the anger of the Yellow Vest movement a couple of years ago. Yeah, what started as a protest against a rise in the price of diesel then turned into a major protest against what people saw as this, you know, elite focused, top down decision making process in France. Yeah, coming from Paris and the anger focused at the top of that, the president, Emmanuel Macron. Anyway, COVID has also raised a lot of questions about decision making in terms of health resources and that kind of thing. But very little of all of this mm -hmm. is actually making it into these regional elections, this campaign for them. Um, partly an issue because of the calendar. So regional elections happen every six years in France and presidential elections every five years. And this year, it so happens that the regional elections now are almost exactly a year ahead of next year's presidential campaign. So we reckon that Macron is going to run for mm -hmm. re-election next year. His party, La République En Marche, Republic On The Move, doesn't currently control any regions. No, no. The last regional elections were before his party even existed. So in these elections, they're keen to get their hands on some. But but really, I mean, these elections are kind of seen as a testing ground for all the parties ahead of the presidentials. Remember, socialists and the left were pretty much decimated in the 2017 election. The right is under a lot of pressure from the hard right national rally, Marine Le Pen's party. I called up political scientist Bruno Cotres to talk about what's going on. And he told me he's been disappointed that the regional election campaigns have had virtually nothing to do with regional issues. It's so sad. It's such a pity because we have seen these two big crises of the Yellow Vest and the COVID. And we are not taking the opportunity of the regional election to talk about these kind of major issues for France. What should the regions and the local authorities decide that the central state can't do. We should have talked about that when actually the regional campaign has been mostly about national issues, particularly with a toxic debate that we have in France, the permanent toxic debate on immigration, on uh, security, law and order. Why do you think this is happening? I mean, it, on some level, this is a little bit of a global phenomenon, this sort of toxic discourse that's, that's happening maybe all over the world. What in particular, though, is, is happening in France? I would say that we have two phenomena. We have a trend since the terrorist attacks. You mean since the 2015 attacks in Paris? Yes, yes. The French debate is really obsessed by the question of uh, the relationship between France, the French Republic, the laicity, and Islam. But also, but also the regional elections this, this year are less than a year before the presidential election. So obviously, the political parties and the potential candidates, by the way, some of them 
are also candidates for the regional elections. So obviously using the regional election also to send messages for the presidential elections. I guess to gain visibility too and, and use it a bit as a campaign, no? Yes, and also because for the next presidential election, it is likely that Marine Le Pen would likely qualify for the second round again. So so Marine Le Pen, the leader of the, the hard right national rally, who actually in these regional elections does seem to be doing fairly well. At least there's one region where maybe her party will come in, possibly win it. Absolutely, yes, yes. So particularly on the rights, the other actors are trying to compete with the Rassemblement National on security and immigration. So these regional elections are being kind of nationalized because of this 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 competition, I guess, between the, the mainstream right and the, the hard right. Where does... um the party in power come into this, Macron's party, La République En Marche, who, you know, is both left and right, or neither left, neither right, um, who who won dominantly in the national elections, but has had trouble winning, you know, the municipal elections and even running candidates now for these broader but still fairly local elections. Actually, the Macron movement has a major difficulty because it has been created from Emmanuel Macron himself. Some people say that La République En Marche doesn't really exist because La République En Marche is actually Macron. So that young movement has actually no local roots. They have not really grassroots at the local level. And so they are using the selection to penetrate a little bit the local authorities and also to resuscitate the message that they are left and right. At the same time, they are, they are going to have electoral alliances with the right wing and with the left wing. But actually, when you look carefully, it is exactly like for the municipal election, when they have electoral agreement between La République En Marche and another party, it is mostly a right-wing party, Les Républicains. It's interesting what you're saying, you know, that the République En Marche has no grassroots base. It kind of then maybe explains why these regional elections have nothing to do with local issues and regional issues. Yes, I really think so. Normally, it should have been the role of the French executive to put a lot of regional issues, to talk about decentralization perspectives. What are we taking out? from the previous crisis, the yellow vest and the COVID. And he's not saying anything about that. No, not a word. No one is talking about how should we think about the future of the decision-making in France. And uh, we have seen that particularly in the COVID crisis with the questions of uh, getting a mask with also the really the management of the health system in France. Mm, yeah, like which hospitals do what and which are, you know, what beds are open and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, we should have talked about this kind of things during the campaign for the regional election. There's been nothing about that. It's just been about police and immigration. Well, absolutely. You, you seem kind of demoralized about these elections. Yes, that's true, because I frankly regret that we had a, an amazing opportunity to talk about uh, an absolutely major issue, the decision-making system. France cannot afford a second yellow vest crisis in the next year. There was an aspect of a popular insurrection in the yellow vest crisis. And the situation wasn't really solved. No. We had the big debate, the Grand Débat National, but we don't know what is coming out from that. Emmanuel Macron never communicates on I am doing so because I heard that in Le Grand Débat National. Never. So for you, this is a simmering thing that is just waiting to pop up again. Yes, it could pop up again. And that would be absolutely dramatic if it would be the case. Ooh, 
He does sound rather demoralised, mm. Sarah. So we have this dramatic prospect of maybe another Yellow Vest protest uh, revival. I wonder what the Yellow Vest supporters will, how they'll vote this weekend. Right. Well, most recent polls suggest that there'll be a lot of abstention. I mean, overall in France, about 60%, maybe more. And of course, this tends to favour fringe or more extremist parties because really the most dedicated mm. voters are the ones who turn out. The National Rally didn't win any regional councils in the pre previous elections in 2015. This time, polls suggest it's in a strong position in areas in southern and eastern France and may win one or more region. And this is despite the fact there have been some recent scandals with some of the national rally candidates mm -hmm. either disciplined or even excluded over making uh, racist and anti-Semitic comments. Right, coming out of the woodworks. But mm. um, the momentum is there. In previous years, there's been what's called the Pacte Républicain, the Republican Pact, where mainstream parties across the political spectrum, left or right, would drop out of the race in the second round and back the most likely candidate to knock out the hard right. Yeah, but this time around, that seems to have fallen apart somewhat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Parties are saying they won't do this or they're, you know, hinting that they won't. Um, lots of disorder there. And then the national rally itself has managed to rebrand itself in a way. Marine Le Pen is looking to clean up the image, presenting the party as mainstream. For example, it no longer favors pulling France out of the European Court of Human Rights. And as a result, a recent poll showed that around 40% of the traditional right-wing Republican Party have quite a favorable opinion of Marine Le Pen. Yeah, a big shift there, right? Making the party more mainstream. Meanwhile, the left is quite divided. Left-wing parties actually organized a national protest against the far right the other day, and it didn't gather huge numbers. Dans le ciel par-dessus le toit, y a de la joie. Et du soleil dans les ruelles, y a de la joie partout, y a de la joie. So this song, Il y a de la joie, there's joy in the air, it's by French crooner Charles Trenet. It was written, Sarah, in 1936 and very much marked the spirit of that year when French workers got paid leave for the first time. The law introducing these two weeks paid leave for everyone in France became effective on the 20th of June, 1936. Right, so 75 years ago this week. Yeah, the legislation was voted just a month after a left-wing alliance came to power known as the Front Populaire, the Popular Front, and it followed a very lengthy general strike. The strike ended when a number of labour reforms were introduced, notably 12 days of paid holiday. That's two six-day work weeks. Now, the paid leave was pushed by the radical socialists who formed part of the Front Populaire government. Some of them were more middle class than their communist comrades, and they wanted to give the working classes a taste of the kind of holidays that some of them had already enjoyed. Mm, and they wanted the bosses to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, good, good tactic, right? <laughs> so some people had already had paid holidays then, right, before 19 yeah, it turns out the very concept of paid vacation is a bit of a French mm. invention. Vive la France. <laughs> yeah. Emperor Napoleon III, so that's Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, introduced paid holidays by decree in 1853, but at that time it was only for civil servants. Right, right, like kind of throwing them a bone, kind of keeping them on his side. Yeah, a bit of a sweetener. <laughs> and then in the early 20th century, some state-run companies gave their employers paid vacation, as did some employers with a bit of 
of a social conscience. But mm. it, it wasn't until June 1936 that this became enshrined in law for all employees. All right. So everyone packed their suitcases and went on vacation. Not straight away. Ah. Uh, no. <laughs> Many people simply weren't used to taking time off. And sure. to be honest, loads of them couldn't afford to go anywhere. In that first year, around 600,000 people left for the seaside or the countryside. But the following year, the numbers tripled to 1.7 million. I guess the travel and leisure industry picked it up and developed and offered some things that they could afford. Yeah, it became a big government project. Uh, hostels, campsites and social clubs were built. The Minister for Sports and Leisure at the time, Léo Lagrange, was very interested apparently in using leisure to bridge class divides. Mm. So, for example, he sponsored the People's Olympiad in Barcelona. That was a sort of alternative to Hitler's Olympics. Mm. And he also personally organised tours of Paris for agricultural workers from other regions. And notably, the government subsidised rail travel so people could afford to get out and about. Right. I guess in a way, paid vacation really did allow people to start discovering their own country. Yeah, people from rural areas began visiting cities and city folk went to the countryside. There was something of a social shift. Interestingly, photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson documented all of this in a very famous and rather wonderful exhibition called En Vacances. Uh, he showed picnicking families camping out by the Marne River, just east of Paris, young couples laughing and, and lolling about under their makeshift tents. Mm, cheerful holiday scenes in a not-so-cheerful time in history, right? Mm. Like World War II broke out in 1939, just a couple years later. Yeah, and the Popular Front, of course, collapsed uh, the year before in 1938. And then at the start of the war, people left Paris by train. Of course, this, this wasn't about going on holiday, but to escape Nazi mm -hmm. occupation. And then with the Vichy regime, with its family values rhetoric. Well, it, it had a very different idea of what leisure and holidays should be. But the principle of paid holiday remained. And of course, it's it's gone on to, to be even better and longer here in France. Yeah, yeah. We now have, what, a minimum five weeks paid vacation mm -hmm. a year, often much more in practice with yeah. bank holidays and all sorts of other days off. Yeah. It's quite different, like in the United States, for example, which has no statutory minimum time off. Yeah, so be honest, Sarah. This must be part of the reason you stay in this country. Yeah, for sure, for sure, <laughs> definitely part. <laughs> and this paid leave has also generated a massive local tourism industry. Most of the French, in fact, spend their holidays here in France and not abroad. Yeah, and very useful in view of the current situation with COVID, keeping travel restrictions. So, Sarah, little blind test for you here. What language is being spoken now? Huh, I'm hearing trills in the R. I mean, it sounds similar to Spanish. Maybe Catalan? Mm, no, a little clue. Um, we're in the south of France, but a little bit further. So Basque? Basque? No, Mempa, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's Occitan. Ah, Occitan. Okay, uh, another one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's Basque, right? Yeah, well done. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, that's Basque. And number three. Well, I'm going to be clear, Mom, Mom. 
Das muss man wo hin sein. Ich muss gesund sein. Das muss ich gehen, das ist ein... That one's a tricky one. I have yeah. no idea what that yeah, one is. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a clue. We're on the west side of France, uh, further, a bit further north, home to the blue and white stripy T-shirt. Ah, is that Breton? Breton. Wow. Well done. Okay. So two out of three. Uh, kind of. Yeah, you did give me a clue on the last I, one. <laughs> I did. I helped you a bit. It's not easy, is it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so these are three of the... 20 or so regional languages spoken in mainland France. There are even more if you include the Creoles of the overseas territories in the Caribbean and in the Indian Ocean. These languages have struggled to survive. France imposed linguistic unity uh, following the French Revolution. And when education became free and open for everyone in the 1880s, the only language that was tolerated was French. Mm. Kids who spoke anything else were punished. And by the 1950s, for example, the situation was particularly bad in Brittany in northwestern France. You could still see signs on the walls like no spitting on the ground or speaking Breton. Both uh, things punishable. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Not good. But there's been a lot more interest in local languages recently and local MPs have been pushing to allow them to be used and taught systematically in their schools. Right. I guess getting kids to learn them from an early age is maybe seen as the best way to make sure these languages have some kind of future. Totally. In April, Parliament approved a bill allowing primary schools to teach most subjects in a regional language alongside French. The bill was brought by a Breton MP, Paul Molac, and the bill's passing was seen as a real positive affirmation of regional identities. Because a lot of this was already happening, but this was kind of supporting it in a legislation. Exactly. Mm. It was about getting state recognition for something that was already naturally happening Mm -hmm. by people who were into local languages. Mm -hmm. But last month, France's Constitutional Council struck down parts of the bill saying it was unconstitutional because it went counter to Article 2. Ah, la langue de la République et le français, the Mm. language of the Republic, is French. Mm. Some people were very unhappy about this and a couple of weeks ago they took to the streets in protest. So it is touching on some very big questions about what being French is because for a long time encouraging regional languages was seen as encouraging separatism. David Coffey, one of our colleagues here at RFI, recently unpicked the politics of France's uh, languages on his podcast, Paris Perspective. He talked to James Costa, who's a linguistic anthropologist at the Sorbonne University, and he specialises in, for example, Occitan, the language that was spoken throughout southern France and still is quite a bit. Mm. Costa says that in the wake of the revolution in 1790, when all the laws and legal documentation in the National Assembly then had to be translated into other languages so people could understand them, well, that raised the question of what constituted a language in the first place. It all started on the, on the 14th of uh, January 1790. A deputy called uh, François-Marie, I think, Bouchette from uh, Flanders in the north of France just asked, you know, can I translate this law into uh, Flemish so that my people will understand? And this is literally two lines in the minutes of the, uh, of the day. And yes, they said, yes, go ahead, of course. And then they come back to it later during the day and they say, OK, let's translate all the laws and decrees into all the languages of the kingdom, which then raises the question, which are the languages of the kingdom? So that itself was complicated. Breton, that was fairly easy. German, that was fairly easy. Italian. But then when it came to the south of France, one deputy came up with the idea that there should be one translation per département, which had just been invented, carved out of the, uh, the, the old provinces. 
And that itself was a very, fairly ridiculous idea because Occitan is not fragmented to the point that you can't understand what is spoken in a different département. But this guy set up his own translation bureau, if you like, and he clearly sought to make money out of it. And the, the, the main issue was that, so we, we only have three of those translations that were ca carried out, but apparently he translated quite a few. But they were very poor. They were very bad. And when they came, when they came back to Paris, people looked at them. They spoke no Occitan. They thought, you know, this doesn't look like something that looks like a language. And that was very detrimental to Occitan. And let's jump, let's say, 200 years um, forward. Now, what about looking at it from literally a Paris perspective. Um, we look back uh, into the 1970s, there was the rise of regionalist movements. Um, was that rise, and let's just say also, you know, separatism that maybe have come with us, at least uh, around the, uh, the festivals and the, some of the, uh, the kind of um, festivals that you would have, is this regionalism still perceived as a threat to the integrity of the French state by, let's just say, the ruling classes in Paris, for example? One of the great fears of the uh, Parisian elite during the revolution was that the South would secede. Uh, and that was completely uh, misled and it, and it was uh, wrong. And I believe that it still is today. And there is this fear that the nation will um, implode, fragment, if, fragment yeah. if, the, if those languages are spoken. And that is very much an ideological perspective on the very notion of diversity not just uh, linguistic, but also religious, cultural, anything that is perceived to be different from the dominant culture is seen as a threat. I really don't think so. TV Bresh in Brittany was set up in the 2000s and it went belly up because they couldn't find the resources to fund any programming for it. It became more and more francophone in its broadcasting and went eventually belly up. So with the law that has been brought in, even though it is helping getting the ball rolling in changing the attitude of the French straight towards minority languages, is it too little too late to save them from obscurity? Well, in this particular case, I think you have to make uh, a separate case for each of the languages. We made a distinction between the languages spoken in continental uh, Europe and the ones spoken in the, the islands, but even there, uh, there is a... Um, a big difference between, say, Basque and Occitan, between Alsatian and Corsican, between Breton and, and of course, all the Creoles. So each language would have to be looked at separately. Um, I think a different answer would have to be given for each of the contexts. Mm -hmm. The Creoles are still very much spoken. Uh, and even saying the Creoles in general is a bit of an oversimplification. But, say, uh, Corsican is still very much spoken on the island. Which uh, is the most successful, do you reckon, of, the, uh, of the, the mainland French languages? Which is the least endangered? Well, how do you measure success? Uh, I mean, Basque is still very strong. And the proportion of children who actually attend Basque medium education is perhaps uh, higher in France than it is in Spain itself. And, and so the language is still very strong in, in, in France, in the northern Basque country. Catalan, on the other hand, surprisingly, is very weak in the French part of Catalonia. You'd think that with, the, with support from the south, it'd be very strong, but it isn't. Yeah. German or Alsatian benefits from the links with Germany. And the fact that fewer and fewer people speak Alsatian is actually very detrimental to employment, for example, because ah. people used to be able to go and work in Switzerland or Germany and speak the, the native Ryan, dialect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
they can't do that anymore, and so they're losing on opportunities. So, but and German is being developed there. Now, Breton and Occitan are very separate cases because they're not spoken anywhere else. Yeah, they're not cross-border languages, indeed. No, yeah. indeed not. But then again, Occitan, same thing. You know, uh, it's probably more spoken in some areas than others, uh, where it fulfills different roles. Let's look forward to the 2022 election uh-huh. here in France. And I mean, it's gearing up to be fought very much along the lines of identity politics and regional issues. Now, to what extent, especially when we're looking at what's happened in Catalonia, to what extent do you think that regional languages could be used to influence the electorate and potentially appealing to a maybe a more popular sentiment uh, among proponents of minority languages and uh, heritage? I mean, do you think it could be manipulated to uh, the causes of any political parties? Well, uh, to give you a short answer, no. But I think, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's probably more complex than that. The first thing is to look perhaps at the regional election. Um, In this election, the question of languages might be used in some regions. It might be of marginal but still some importance. Well, emotionally. Yeah, it might be brought up in the Basque Country. It will certainly be of importance in Corsica, uh, where uh, there is a demand for co-officiality. Equal status. Equal status, thank you. Yeah, yeah, a demand that has systematically been rejected by the French government, but that is definitely present. Of course, if you look at Alsace, Alsace no longer exists as a region. It is now drowned into this contest, greater eastern region. So uh, it will be difficult to articulate uh, claims about language there. But that dissolution of the various regions mm. by identity was an actual construct of the fabric of the new republic. Oh, I mean, aye, absolutely. Much, they, yeah. just, they don't exist. No, absolutely. Exactly. But see, that's why it's interesting that uh, when the, the new regions were carved out back in 2015 and 2016, they brought back... Occitania, Mm. which probably says something not very positive about the future of the language. If the French state thought that it was benign enough to call a a region... give us its name back. Exactly. Then it probably means that the French state does not see it as a threat in, in any way. Now, to come back to your question about next year, Identity politics will definitely be uh, of importance, but I think that um, uh, identity in this sense has moved on to religious issues, which has always been the the fabric of uh, conflict in the French Republic. The laïcité, the the secularism. Which is used as a way, as a proxy to talk about diversity and about uniformity, and that is the the constant obsession of the, the ruling class in this country, because they view any form of diversity as a threat to um, secede. So we've come to the end of the show. Uh, If you have any comments about this episode or more generally, then send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Instagram, Spotlight on France. Find us there. We'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, the 1st of July. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah.